Francis X. Bushlad is never uncouth. It's Nescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo library with a few pit stops along the way. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them. That is pretty much all you need to know. I just hit my desk. I'm Steampunk Link. <laughs> I'm Emmy Zero, and... That's my Taz. That's my Taz impression. <laughs> Taz hate water. Very good. Very good. Anyway, folks, how, how's everybody doing today? Huh? It's still July over here, I think. I think this will still be going up in July. I think so, yeah. we got a couple more weeks of July at this point, so so yeah. The pandemic sure is doing something. I, I don't know if I want to quite say it's it's on the way out yet, because I don't really know that anymore, but... Yeah, uh, well, we'll just have to see on that one, because I, I don't feel comfortable making any pronouncements about that either. Um, oh, hey, I guess we'll just get serious right now. to get serious hey everybody out there please just act as if the pandemic is still happening maybe just keep wearing a mask just in case keep social distancing just in case worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to keep everybody safe for no reason maybe just keep doing that for a little while like no net negative but uh yeah anyway well, we've been talking about everything but these games today <laughs> um we sure have well we we have only got two games today so you know but yeah so so what what do we have we're still in may 1993 uh coming up really quite close to the end of may 1993 well we got going on some super turrican and some tasmania which is uh based on a saturday morning cartoon featuring the Tasmanian Devil, and we'll, we'll talk about that and more when we get there. We certainly will, but I think to start off with, uh, let's talk about some Super Turrican. So what do we got going on here with the Super Turrican situation? All right, well, Super Turrican comes to us from publisher Seika, not to be confused with Sega, uh, not a whole lot about them on the web. I think the most interesting thing I found out about these folks is that they are a Japanese publisher that seems to have formed a brief kind of partnership with Chemco in America to distribute both companies' games under the label Chemco Seika. They did, uh, I think, some of those... Crazy Castle games and some other Looney Tunes games, oddly enough. Ah, uh, yes, okay. They also do not have a whole lot of games associated with them on Moby Games. Um, the last game from Seika seems to be the Super Aquatic Games, which came out on the SNES in 93, I believe. So uh, we won't have to wait much longer before talking about that one, I don't think. But uh, the more interesting story here is the developer, Factor 5, a German company founded in Cologne. Cologne? Do you just pronounce it like Cologne? Is that how you're supposed to say that? I think you do, yeah. I think it's it's Cologne, yeah. Okay. So they were founded in Cologne, Germany, in 1987 by five developers, hence the name Factor 5. Uh, they had just left a company called Rainbow Arts, which had, it seems, shed a lot of folks around the late 80s and early 90s to go form their own companies. Yeah. <laughs> another one of those we talked about not too long ago, uh, Blue Bite. Oh, really? They were another one. Yeah, I think we talked about them back when we were talking about Jimmy Connors Pro Tennis. 
Christmas. So uh, Rainbow Arts itself is responsible for a lot of games on computer systems like the Atari ST, the Commodore 64, and the Amiga in the mid to late 80s. One of their most prominent might be the somewhat infamous Super Mario Brothers clone, the Great Gianna Sisters. Ah, yes. Yes, yes. Which I will defend somewhat as, you know, like, hey, Nobody else was making a Super Mario Brothers like on the PC that was as good as Super Mario Brothers. So they said, hey, we're just going to make that. You know, if you didn't have a console back in the day, that was probably a perfectly fine way of playing that kind of game. So there you go. Well, yeah, it's it's probably worth remembering that, uh, you know, the the Nintendo systems really kind of up until the Super Nintendo didn't really have like much of a presence in Europe. So it's a little bit of a different situation than if they had been putting out that game in places where Mario was very prominent, very widely available. So Rainbow Arts would eventually get rolled into a company called Funsoft, which would later get rolled into a company called Soft Gold, and then they would later get rolled into THQ. So, yeah, they're not really with us anymore. Uh, but getting back to Factor 5, uh, their story starts with a game called Katakis, which was a shmup for the Amiga, which ended up being published by Rainbow Arts, oddly enough. The uh, Turrican series was uh, an early hit for the company, releasing versions of the game on just about every computer and console around at the time. And then uh, later on in the 90s, the developer would plant roots in California and develop a relationship with LucasArts, which would have them developing uh, Indiana Jones Greatest Adventures for the SNES, another game we will get to eventually. They also made a follow-up to Lucas's Ball Blazer called Master Blazer. I only bring that up because those titles are hilarious. They are absolutely hilarious. Uh, Master Blazer, he's really, really cool. Just blazing it. Uh, Factor 5 would work closely with Nintendo as well, especially in the N64 and GameCube years, working on a lot of Star Wars games, such as the Battle for Naboo and the Rogue Squadron series. But after all that, Factor 5 set its sights higher. They didn't want to just make games based on existing franchises anymore. Oh, no. They wanted to create something new and big. They wanted to create their opus. They left Nintendo behind and started work on a game for Sony's PS3. And that game was Lair. Yeah, which uh, if you don't know the story of Lair, it is a pretty sad one. Yeah, it was uh, not a good game, and uh, nobody liked it. Usually, you know, if critics hate something, you'll find a lot of fans of the game anyway, but uh, not this time. I mean, the issue with Lair was it was kind of like the Rogue Squadron series. It was like an aerial combat game, but you were on a dragon instead of uh, flying a ship around. And that probably would have been absolutely fine if lair had controlled normally but there was a, a really disastrous choice made to make lair a game that only controlled via the playstation 3's six axis controller which was a motion controller that did not work nearly as well as say like the wii remotes and it was you know it was like a borderline unplayable game it's bad uh, i've touched that thing and i wanted to put it down almost immediately yeah the six axis might be one of the biggest mistakes sony has ever made uh with regards to their playstation line yeah just an absolutely uh baffling and unnecessary thing that they did quickly abandon in favor of the dualshock 3 which brought rumble back to its controllers because seriously that's what people actually wanted not tilt controls on your freaking ps3 controller 
I mean, I mean, to be fair, the the DualShock Three could still do the tilt controls. It was just that nobody used them for anything after like the first gear of the PlayStation Three because they weren't very good. If needing to be Sony's ill-fated guinea pig for their six-axis controls weren't enough, uh, they had also been working with Brash Entertainment to make a Superman game. Brash Entertainment only existed for a year, and in that year, they made games like Alvin and the Chipmunks and Jumper: Griffin's Story. Remember Jumper? Yeah, based on the hit action sci-fi movie starring Hayden Christensen, uh, Jumper. Uh, wow, what a what a classic that was. The Brash Entertainment thing, uh, man, there are a lot of studios that went down thanks to Brash Entertainment. If you're interested in the story of kind of what all happened there and what some of those canceled games were, uh, I would recommend looking up Did You Know Gaming report on, I believe, the canceled uh, Flash game. Like the game about like the... Uh, the superhero Flash. Brash was thinking they were going to be spinning a lot of plates because apparently they had a Flash game, a Superman game, and they were also working on like a Saw game. And we are on a huge tangent now that has like nothing to do with with Turrican or anything like that. But Brash essentially got the license to develop a bunch of DC Comics games. <laughs> they got a bunch of studios to work on them. Uh, and I think the only thing that ultimately ended up coming out of that was actually Batman Arkham Asylum, which was started development under this brash deal and was far enough along and promising enough that it actually got picked up by like Warner Brothers and their nascent games publishing division uh, when this whole thing went up in smoke. Yeah, and I do know that someone else picked up Saw. I think it might have been Konami that ended up bringing that Saw game into the world. I, I don't know how much of that was, um, you know, Brash's leftovers or if they had even really started it in any meaningful way. Uh, but I mean, that, that company, I will say to their credit, they were only around for a year and they did manage to release quite a few games. I mean, I think, yeah, I think the deal with Brash was that it was some like Hollywood executive thought he could get into games. So he like, took his like personal nest egg and started a games company. And, you know, he had a bunch of friends in Hollywood, so he was able to make all these deals for the rights to various franchises and then had no idea how to actually run a games company or keep like the lights on. And speaking of not keeping the lights on, uh, that is what Factor 5 could not do as well <laughs> after all of this went down. In fact, they weren't even able to pay a lot of their employees and would end up closing their doors in May of 2009. And I think there were a few lawsuits brought against them by uh, employees who did not get paid paid for some of their work. What's weird is that Factor 5 is kind of back now. Like, Factor 5 kind of managed to reconstitute itself around several of the, like, the, the people that were, like, in charge of it, who, like, kept working together just, like, outside of games. Like, a couple years ago, they were like, yeah, we bought the rights to Turrican back, so uh, we're back, I guess. And uh, they have been re-releasing Turrican on a lot of things, including uh, a director's cut, of Turrican that was bundled with the Super NT, which is a, a kind of premium aftermarket um, Super NES compatible console, I guess you could call it. Yeah, it's like a clone console for the, the Super Nintendo. Uh, it's, it's like a, an FPGA thing, so it's like pretty high end. But yeah, it's it shipped with a, an included exclusive game, and it was the director's cut of Super Turrican. So it's this game with several extra levels and I guess some nips and tucks in various places.
So yeah, so after all of that, I guess we should talk about Super Turrican. Uh, this is a uh, a running gun game where you are uh, a robot or possibly a guy in robotic looking armor. There's a bunch of different Turrican games for like different platforms, as you said. Like there's you know the Amiga ones. There's an NES one that is confusingly also called Super Turrican, even though it's a different game. Uh, there's Mega Turrican for the Mega Drive, and it seems like a lot of them have like different backstories for what the dude you're playing as actually is. I think in this one, he's just like a super soldier that's in like robot armor. uh, And he's trying to save this planet from a dude who looks like the bad guy from Battle of the Planets. I don't know. There's very little in the way of story in this thing. But uh, yeah, so you play as this guy and you have uh, various weapons that you can shoot. You pick up orbs that can switch and power up your weapons. Uh, You also have like a little freeze beam and a screen clearing attack. It's your basic kind of 2D running gun sort of platformer. You also have a weird version of like the morph ball from Metroid as well, where like you kind of turn into a ball and then just roll automatically across the screen. And you can drop bombs. You know what? I I didn't even know that. <laughs> I somehow missed out on that part. <laughs> I wonder if that was the difference between you liking the game and me not caring for it so much, because I didn't care for this one. I, I didn't think it was bad. You know, it's a perfectly serviceable run and gun kind of game. But I don't know, like the level design here just seems aggressively uh, just just unfriendly and and unfair at times. Like you you get early on into level one and suddenly there's wind blowing you back. It's like, okay, but also there's lightning striking and it's just striking directly at you for some reason. It's like, well, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do about this. I can't aim up. I can only aim to the sides. I can use my weird freezy beam at an angle, but it's so awkward to control because uh, basically when you switch to your freeze gun, your freeze laser, whatever you want to call it, your character's feet get planted on the ground so you can't move forward or back anymore. And now the D-pad... It rotates your laser, yeah. I think pushing right rotates it clockwise and left rotates it counterclockwise. It's it's just not terribly intuitive. Yeah, it's a strange... It's a, a sort of strange setup. Um, no, it's, it's interesting because I think taken as a whole, these controls work, but there, there's a surprisingly large learning curve to like getting used to them. So So here's the thing about this game's sort of level design. I think there is a little bit of a Sonic thing going on here where some parts of these levels are wider open than others and there's different ways you can get through them. Uh, There are some parts that are just completely straightforward and you're just having to navigate some tricky platforming and stage hazard objects and, uh, and get to the end. But there's also a lot of places where there's like invisible platforms that you can shoot to make appear and then use to like get to other parts of the level that are otherwise inaccessible. So it's also possible that we just kind of took slightly different paths through the level like that. Definitely that thing with the wind, uh, it it was annoying, but it didn't. It, it, like, uh, for whatever reason, like, I was on kind of, like, this upper part of the level, like, above all of the places where, like, the waterfalls were. And, like, it just wasn't as hard to get through up there once I got there. I mean, I, I like the design of the character and a lot of the enemies. You know, I think those all work fine. I think some enemies are just, like, such bullet sponges that it gets kind of obnoxious. Like, there are these strange hive looking things where these bees come out and yeah the the weird sort of hexagonal hives yeah 
you you have to shoot them so many times. Really annoying. And, you know, it's just kind of like, why why would they make it like this? This isn't making this any more fun. It's not even really making it any more challenging. It's just keeping me here and making me have to hold down the shoot button longer. Yeah, no, that's kind of true. And um, you can, you know, get yourself in a kind of a bad situation here if you haven't powered up your weapon a little bit. Uh, because I think that, like, you know, basically there's like a few different kinds of guns in this game that you switch between sort of like shmup style, essentially just by getting a different power up that changes out the thing you have. You know, there's like a straight ahead, uh, you know, just sort of like blaster thing. There's one that's like three bullets stacked on top of each other that are kind of stronger. There's a bouncing one that you can kind of angle off of things. And they're all like, I think that like the areas that you're shooting in are usually tight enough that I honestly didn't find that it mattered that much, but getting a few of a particular power up does like make it stronger. And that definitely does help. A thing I didn't know that is kind of useful is you can jump on enemies too and hurt them which is not a thing I would have expected at all from this kind of game. Like you can like Mario jump on enemies and like squash them, uh, which usually makes them unable to attack for a little while. Uh, and I wish the game had tried at all to kind of set that up or, or make you do that one time so that you see that's possible because yeah, like this game gives you kind of, I think a surprisingly large toolkit of, of things to use to attack enemies with, but it doesn't really lay any of that out clearly. Like I, I think that probably what you're supposed to do is freeze a lot of the enemies and then, you'll kind of use that to like limit how much space you have around, you know, how, how close they can get to you. But like, that's pretty hard to do when the controls are the way they are for the freeze beam. Yeah. I found myself not really wanting to use the freeze beam all that much. And while you do have a pretty big tool set with the main three weapons, you can only use one at a time. You can't just switch among them on the fly, whichever, colored orb you picked up last is the weapon that you're going to have. And that's a very shmup sort of power up philosophy. And I don't think it works all that well in the context of a game like this, because I actually did find like I didn't have the weapon that I really needed, which more often than not was the spread gun (laughs) to handle certain situations. Yeah, I think this game has a lot of shmup design philosophy in it that I don't think serves a platformer well like this one well no it's interesting because i think genuinely here we just had different feelings about like how good this game feels to play because like that's that's sort of the thing is like i genuinely thought this was just like a fun tight feeling action shooter Uh, i don't know how to square that because i can't really like make a a really specific argument for why it feels that way to me and it it sort of clearly doesn't for you but yeah i just i had a pretty good time playing this yeah i think that i would probably have had a similarly positive experience with this game if i could just have angled my gun up like if i could have just shot diagonally up i think that would have eliminated a lot of the problems that i had with this game and i think it would have made it a lot more enjoyable for me did like the first boss which seemed to be a giant terminator hand yeah it was just like a big old robot hand just floating and uh it'll it'll punch down on you the next boss which consisted of rocks flying at me um i didn't like i hated the rocks 
Now, so this is the thing that I found genuinely really obnoxious about the game. When you die facing a normal boss like the hand, the game respawns you instantly. But if you die during that sequence with the falling rocks, you have to restart the sequence. And it's really annoying. Yeah, it really is. And like the falling rock sequence is just obnoxious because like I don't know what I was supposed to do there. Now, the secret there, I think, is genuinely to use the rolling thing that you didn't know about, unfortunately, because you can just roll from one end of the screen to another, putting bombs down and taking out the rocks as they come down. (laughs) Unfortunately, if you don't know that's an option for you, that sequence is borderline unfinishable, I think. Yeah, maybe that was my whole problem. I, I actually... Just to see a little bit more of this game, I think I used a level skip that I saw on uh, the cuttingroomfloor.net. And uh, yeah, I got to another boss, which was like a giant mech. This one boss encounter, like it just felt like it was taking forever and I never did finish it. I just ran out of lives. He just he just killed me too many times. But again, I also ended up in a situation with that boss where it's most vulnerable on its head. But once my spread gun was powered down, I couldn't hit it there anymore from the ground. I mean, what's wild is like the long play of this game that I watched had a different solution for that boss. And uh, it's not one that I think is intuitive at all and requires you to know like where this dude is going to spawn in the first place. But it's basically like if you stand right where he's going to come out of the ground, you will just get lifted up onto his gun and you can stand there and just shoot him in the head until he dies. I didn't make it to that boss, like, personally. Like, I made it into the level before him where you're going through these lava caves and uh, you have to ride these rafts through uh, through various levels of this cave. And um, I never made it quite to, to the end there. The way I, I started thinking about this game is that this game almost, to me, feels like If you took the gameplay of a Metroid game, but then you turned it into like a completely like linear shooter, you know, where it's not about exploration. It's just about navigating these really like tight sort of hazard filled platform stages and, you know, shooting tons and tons of enemies. That's kind of what this feels like to me. So I think your mileage would really vary a lot on like whether you think that's good or not. Like, I think there's a lot of people that don't want that. Yeah, and and I kept thinking of Contra when I was playing this game. Like, this feels a little bit like Contra, except that I don't think my character has the necessary skills to always be able to deal with whatever situation is is kind of put in front of me. But again, you know, I mean, I, I didn't know about the morph ball thing. I didn't know you could walk on that giant mech's gun. I don't know. I will say uh, I think this game looks great. I think it has really good music, especially in the first the first set of levels. Um, some of the stuff later on in the game that I've seen, I don't think has quite the great you know melodies that first stage has. But yeah, man, you can put that stuff on at a club. I, I think that the the design for most of the enemies and characters are all right. I think that some of the backgrounds are a bit busy. I mean, this definitely has that kind of demo scene thing. The individual elements look great, but it's like maybe not put together with the the kind of quite the eye for making like a really functional game out of them. I will say it's really funny if you look at like footage of the last set of levels because it's just alien. Like it's like you're just fighting xenomorphs and face huggers and eggs and like the last boss is literally just a big xenomorph to be fair that's also contra to some extent so to some extent but here it's i mean they're good sprites but they look like they are taken directly out of an alien game 
Yeah, I don't know. I thought this was good. Um, you know, I do think it's much better than a lot of the stuff we've seen come from, like, ex-demo scene people. Just in, in the fact I do think this fits together as, like, a good, as, like, a, a functional game in a really real way. But I definitely get where you're coming from with your frustrations with it as well, though. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the whole thing about on an individual level, all the pieces work. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that putting it all together, they didn't craft it with quite as much care. I think that that goes for not only the aesthetics, but also just the the level design in general. I, I don't think it's a bad game, but it, it certainly didn't endear itself to me. Yeah. So another game I was kind of thinking of while I was playing this was Gods because it, it has kind of a similar aesthetic. It's a very European looking platformer of a particular vintage, let's say. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So where did we have Gods on here? Uh, Gods is at number 109 right now, but I am I am happy to go up from there. Yeah, I would go up from there just because I think that Gods is kind of just so relentless and exhausting to play that I, I didn't find it as fun overall as this. I don't think that's a terrible uh, place to, to start, though. I'm trying to think of what else I would say is is kind of a good a good comp for this. The 80s, we got Axelay at 89 and Tom and Jerry at 90. I was kind of looking in a similar area because I think I'd be okay putting this above Tom and Jerry, but I'm not sure I would put this above Axelay unless you want to make an argument for it. No, that feels kind of right to me. I think Axley is just kind of operating on another level from this game. I'd be pretty comfortable with that, actually, putting this between Axley and Tom and Jerry. So congratulations, Super Turrican, number 90 on our list that now has uh, nearly 200 things on it. All right, well, that does it for Super Turrican. We got one game left, and that is Tasmania. Come to Tasmania. Come to Tasmania. We mean you. Did, did you watch Tasmania back in the day? I feel like I must have, because even though I don't have any really strong memories of the show, I was watching the Tasmania opening uh, credits animation this morning. And I remembered every bit of it. Like, I, it's like it's burned into my brain and I completely forgot about it. So, yes, I must have watched this show. But I think that opening is probably the most memorable part to me because I don't have a ton. I have a few, actually, now that I think about it. I have a few memories of the show itself, but not nearly as many as I have of that very well animated opening. I mean, I definitely remember quite a few things. I remember... Taz's Bing Crosby-esque father, blah, 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 yakety schmackety thing. I remember um, the alligator, who I believe was voiced by uh, John Astin. That's right. We talked about this when we talked about the Adams Family. Right, yeah. We will never pass up an opportunity to talk about John Astin on this show. Uh, I remember Taz hate water. Uh, Taz definitely hate water. Uh, and and yeah, that's about it. I mean, the show ran for like four seasons. It it. It was out there. Taz was a weirdly popular character back then. Yeah, uh, he sure was. He was on a bunch of merchandise. I know uh, it was Taz was kind of inescapable for a few years in the 90s. And that's a strange thing to say. Yeah, yeah, it is, especially given the fact that he, he almost got shelved after one cartoon. And I guess, you know, we should probably talk a little bit about the history of some of this uh, and then we'll 
talk about the game. So uh, this one comes to us from Sunsoft. Uh, they did the other Looney Tunes game that we have talked about so far, uh, Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally. This game stars the Tasmanian Devil character from Looney Tunes and Mary Melody shorts. And um, here we're just referring to him as Taz. I don't know if that's a nickname that stuck in the 90s or if he was nicknamed that before. It's funny, actually. Most of my Taz memories are just from this era. So I don't know what his deal was in a lot of the Looney Tunes cartoons he appeared in, even. Well, he was always just referred to as the Tasmanian Devil. And, you know, his shtick was was pretty much the same thing. It was, you know, he, he eats all the animals and Bugs Bunny is like, well, you don't eat rabbits. It says right here in the encyclopedia. And so Taz says, well, uh... I'm just going to write rabbits in there, and now I eat rabbits, so I'm going to eat you. But anyway, uh, getting a little ahead of ourselves, uh, Taz was created, Bob McKimson and Sid Marcus. His first appearance was in 1954's Devil May Hare, where he is uh, presented as an antagonist to Bugs Bunny. And producer Edward Selzer uh, worried that the character was too violent. That would get him shelved until Jack L. Warner requested more shorts with the character. A few years later, Taz would make four more appearances before Warner shut down production of the Looney Tunes shorts. Uh, But the character would keep appearing in other Looney Tunes media, and the character got, as we said, inexplicably popular. In fact, this actually is not his first starring role in a video game. His first starring role in a video game was in 1983's Taz. Oh, so I guess he actually did have the nickname Taz before the 90s. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Taz for the Atari 2600 let players control the Tasmanian Devil in a maze chase game. And he also appeared in a lot of games on the Sega Genesis, uh, also with the name Tasmania, that were, I believe, um, at the very least published by Sega, if not uh, produced by them as well, or if not developed by them. But uh, yeah, that brings us to 1991, where Taz gets his own Saturday morning cartoon show, and his world specifically is expanded with a bunch of other characters, uh, like his family, his mom and dad, uh, his, his brother and sister, his uh, co-workers, Bushwhacker Bob, and uh, some other folks whose names I can't remember, uh, uh, Didgeridingo, Wendell T. Wolf. Now I'm just trying to remember the theme song. <laughs> yeah, the idea of Taz having co-workers is wild, honestly. Somebody was like, I guess we'll hire you. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, in this weird world of anthropomorphic animals, you know, Taz isn't like this great force of, of destruction anymore. He's he's maybe just a guy who's a little bit different and just needs needs to find an outlet for all that extra energy. No, that's true. That's true. So one thing I will say about this game, and now that we, we start talking about this game, I was really surprised when I booted this up and I heard merrily we roll along instead of the Tasmania theme, almost like Squaresoft was a little bit confused as to like... Oh, uh, it's Sunsoft, yeah. Did I say Squaresoft? You did say Squaresoft. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, like, I think you're right. Like, it's it's a weird mix here where you do see some Tasmania characters in this, but the overall feel of it, like, there's nothing of like... You know, there's no no context for this that would, like, put it anywhere close to, like, the show itself. It's really just, like, the Tasmanian Devil as, like, a force of destruction. Uh, just to back up a little bit, we should probably describe how this game actually plays, because it's it's not what you think, probably, if you're just hearing about this. This is not... Uh, there, there probably were a lot of side-scrolling platformers starring Taz, but this is not one of them. This uses... Um, I guess sort of a technology that's that's pretty similar to what we saw in 
um, uh, Top Gear, um, the kind of like road scrolling, you know, uh, forward and backward technology uh, that you would usually use in a racing game to make uh, a thing that's almost like kind of like an endless runner with Taz. You're behind his back. You're going down this road that has twists and turns and various hazards. And yeah, you're trying to catch these yellow kiwi birds and eat them uh, to finish the stage under a time limit. This kind of works like this is that is what you do in this game. Uh, There's also, you know, various things that will, uh, you know, uh, stop you. You know, if you run into anything along the side of the road or get run over by a car, you don't die, but you do have a health bar. And uh, you do, of course, have a time limit, which can run out if you don't get all of the birds during that time. Yeah, and that's really the the big loop of the game is you keep running along this track, um, you know, and you just keep making as many laps as you need to do in order to catch the required amount of kiwi in order to progress to the next stage. And if you do that four time runs out, you move on. If you don't, then you have to continue. And, and yeah, I guess you have only so many continues. The obstacles aren't so much a threat to Taz's health as much as they are just a threat to wasting his time. Which, so, you know, getting run over by Buddy Bull will cause Taz to be flattened and you've got to, you know, hit some buttons really fast in order to help Taz shake it off. But this all costs you time. Uh, you can get some time back by eating the purple birds that fly around the screen sometimes. And also you can get uh, you can use tornado power to move faster. So if you're not seeing any Kiwi, you can just kind of use your tornado, your Taz tornado and just speed along in. That'll also let you avoid most obstacles. And there are a lot of characters from Tasmania. Like you've got uh, Didgeridingo who shows up. And if you um, if you grab the Acme package out of his hand, uh, you'll get something random. Sometimes it'll be something good. Sometimes it'll be something bad because that's how Dingo rolls. Um, you also have to be careful not to get run over by Buddy Bull, who's just trying to run over Taz for some reason. But then also weirdly, like Taz gets pursued in some stages by a lady Tasmanian devil who I'm fairly certain was a character from the Looney Tunes shorts and not from Tasmania. They've got a really good idea here, I think. You know, I'm always complaining too many things of this era for video games just got boiled down to, you know, another 2D action platform kind of game. So I I really applaud that they went in a different direction with this and they they tried experimenting with basically the sort of visual language and, and the mechanics of a racing game to make something like this. It's it's kind of interesting. I, I see a lot of people sort of describe it as like a similar sort of game to Road Rash. Mm, I could see that, yeah. I think that probably the um the closest comparisons I would make to it are are things that don't exist yet at this point. Um like I think that this kind of reminds me of like the chase levels from uh Crash Bandicoot, where you're running into the screen away from like a boulder or something. And they also, it also really reminds me of Pepsi Man, deeply bizarre PS1 advert game for Pepsi's creepy Japanese mascot, uh, where he's running through the city, he's trying to give people Pepsi, and you got to make it to the end of these courses uh, before time runs out. So it's it's kind of like that. The main thing that I have an issue with here is that I just find this game infuriating to play. I continually had situations where I would almost be lined up to catch a Kiwi, but it just wouldn't quite be in the right place. And then I would miss it. I'd have to go ahead. I'd have to run back. 
Um, and it would just eat up so much time. And then frequently, I would also like run into something while I was trying to do that. So I would lose even more time. For the first like five minutes I was playing this game, I was really enjoying it. I was like, oh, this is a pretty neat. This is a neat way to do this. This is a neat game to make with this character. And then uh, over time, I started to feel like even though this is by no means the worst game we've ever played, it is kind of maybe my personal hell game where it's in like a weird, uncanny space where it's almost good and fun to play. But the things that make it annoying make it so annoying that like I get this weird kind of like cognitive dissonance thing where it's like, I feel like I should be able to like this, but I really don't. This game seems to be pretty well panned by a lot of folks when I was doing my research for it. I I don't hate this. But I definitely see where that frustration comes from. Like when you're trying to grab the Kiwi, if you're not lined up perfectly, the Kiwi, especially in later levels, will do something like they'll just come to a dead stop. So you'll completely pass them by. They'll switch to the other side of the street somehow. They just do all of these weird things that make it really too wily. They just make it almost impossible to catch them. And I don't know, like I almost wonder if this game would have been better if these sections were maybe like mixed in with some more traditional 2D side-scroller kind of stuff. Because I do feel like limiting the gameplay to this, it, it makes it so that, like, the world of Tasmania isn't really... It's not really represented for the most part, yeah. Yeah, not really. Um, or if, you know, like, they had made levels that were more traditional racing kind of games, and, you know, like, like if you just made, a, like, a Taz cart sort of deal, you know? Like, I could see something like that working. It, it feels like a rough draft in in some ways. Like, I feel like even if this thing worked better than it does, there's just not really much here. Like, I feel like the experience you have in the early levels is, from what I can tell from watching footage of the later levels, just not that different from the experience of of the game all the way through. I wish there was a little more here, and I wish that what was here was more forgiving in a way that would make it make it more fun to play. Like, I feel like this could be a more inviting game than it is. And that being as uh, extremely tight with like what you need to do to actually like catch, catch the Kiwis and complete the levels doesn't really like benefit the game. It doesn't like make it more fun or anything. It's just, it's just frustrating. Yeah. And the other thing that I'm not crazy about is later on in the game where they introduce elements like the lady Tasmanian devil who's pursuing Taz. If she catches up to him, it's just straight up game over, just like as as if the timer had run out. I don't know that the I, I needed the added stress of needing to avoid something on top of needing to catch a certain amount of things in this very frustrating way within a certain time limit was necessary, you know? Like, it it just feels like more stuff that I don't really want to have to deal with. about this one. Did you have any other thoughts before we go to the list? I will say one other thing. I like the effect where Wendell T. Wolf puts his hands over Taz's eyes and you actually see that represented as giant hands coming across the screen. Yeah, that's cool. It kind of freaked me out the first time it happened, but it was a, it was a neat effect. Yeah, no, that's fun, actually. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is a good looking game. Like, this is a really nice looking has good sprites, uh, a lot of fun cartoony animation when Taz gets like squashed by something. 
Uh, I think this game would look great in screenshots on like the back of a box. And unlike Bubsy, all of the animations like have a, a reason for existing. They're they're taking your time away as, as punishment for hitting an obstacle and not just being wacky, wasting your actual time. <laughs> well, where do you think is a good place to start for this one? Because I'll be honest. I think I would go back to this game before I would go back to Super Turrican, but I'm fairly certain you do not agree with me on that, and I'm I'm okay with. No, I I don't agree with that. Um, but I think that I, I'm I'm looking and trying to find a place that I think is a fair place to to sort of start talking about this. Um, I'll be honest, this might be a really short discussion, but I would actually be okay with putting this directly underneath Super Turrican because I think. This is a, a more clever use of a license than Tom and Jerry was. You know, so so here's the thing. I, I think that's good. I think that's fine, honestly, because I think you and I ended up in opposite places on like exactly opposite places on both of these games. So I think I think for that in, in, in that respect, uh, you know, um, as as you, you know, were willing to kind of defer to, to me having had a better time with with super turrican um you know i i think this makes sense and i also do think that looking at the stuff that's below that on the list here it, it is kind of difficult for me to to go like oh yeah you know this is clearly the super nintendo version of of wing commander is clearly a better game than this you know like i can't really do that i do think that tom and jerry for as much as it was like a basically totally a functional platform game is also very obnoxiously unfair in some places and also just not a creative use of those characters. It was a serviceable game, but you know, I think that this Tasmania game was trying to do something different with the license. And I, and I do appreciate that. Yep. I think it would be weird for us to put this a lot lower given how many times we've complained about all the generic cookie cutter uh, licensed platform games on the system. So yeah, uh, Tasmania, new number 91. That sounds good to me. Congratulations, Tasmania, 91 in the top 100. And uh, meaning we've got, let's see, 189 games on the list. I do want to let everybody know that uh, honestpiranha.com, I've, I've started updating it again. So the list should be updated now. I'm trying to kind of go back and fill in all the episodes that I did not put on that blog. So I'm working on that. Very cool. So yes, yeah, so you can go to honestpiranha.com right now and you should be able to listen to the latest episode and take a look at the list if you want to kind of follow along or if you want to, you know, send me a message on Twitter at Snescapades and say, hey, I think you guys should move this thing on the list to some other place. And, you know, if you give us a good reason for that, we will listen and we might relitigate that game later. Uh, who knows? And if you're having trouble remembering how to spell Piranha, just remember that we put the ha in Piranha. That's how I remembered to how to spell Piranha, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so what do we have coming up next time on the show? We only got two more games for May. That's right. So next time we're going to be finishing off the month of May with uh, two games that I am going to tell you right now. Um, okay, so we've got Vegas Stakes and Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego. Not not where in the world, where in time. Well, I'm sure we'll be able to talk for a while about one of those games. Another show with a uh, catchy theme. Well, no, actually, no. This uh, Where in Time 
did not have Rockapella. That was when they went for the weird futuristic thing, right? Yeah, and they just had like three people singing to pre-recorded music and it wasn't nearly as impressive. A step down for sure. How do you make a show like Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego and not have Rockapella involved in every single Carmen Sandiego related thing after that? Huh? That's all I want to know. Good question. Uh, and a question we'll try to answer next time. Uh, no, probably not. We won't. We won't answer that next time. Uh, probably not. There is an actual Where in the World is Carmen San Diego game for the Super NES. I'm pretty certain we'll we'll probably talk more about that when we get there. That that'll be great. That'll be really good. But yes, uh, I hope you join us for that one. And uh, until next time, I'm Emmy Zero. I'm Steampunk Link. Play it loud. Our intro outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoax, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty free at technoax.com. That's T E K N O A X E.com. Welcome to Atlanta, it's way under, down under. The sky's always yellow in rain or shine. Down in Tasmania, come to Tasmania. When Topsy meets Tubby, they start to spin like a Tasmanian devil and his closest kin. Down in Tasmania, come to Tasmania. Mom's alive, why are dads never born along? Molly's all fired up, will take place with the dog. Down in Tasmania, come to Tasmania. Didgeridingo and Wendell T. Wolf.